In the uh, book of 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 5, um, Paul makes a statement here that he says that he prays that faith will not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. And, and I think what Paul's saying there is there's a kind of faith that can arise that is based on human wisdom, which is astonishing, right? If you think about it in church, that's telling us that, that there's faith that God gives rise to, and there's faith that the wisdom of men can give rise to. And, and as someone who, who teaches, that's always challenging because that, that means that, that we've always got to be careful to, to make sure that what we're saying is, isn't a clever construct. Um, that there's this thing called rhetoric. Some of you know about rhetoric. Um, there's the ethical appeal that, that is all about presenting myself to you in a way that makes you like what I'm about to say because of who I am or how I dress or who I associate with. Um, there's the pathos appeal, which means that I'm going to try and move your hearts in a way that's going to make you feel something. If I can make you hate something, uh, I can probably persuade you to my cause, and that's used a whole lot in the political sphere. Think about how politicians, I don't think I've ever seen a debate where they're not all in suits, the men, of a particular kind and a particular tie and a particular shirt and a particular hair style and all those sort of things, right? Um, that's an ethical appeal to make you like them because of how they dress. It's junk. The pathos appeal that means that they set up enemies for you to hate so that you like their cause is junk. It's a rhetorical device. And the logos appeal, which means that you present in a way that is orthodox and organized and logical and rational, like lawyers do, that some of us were schooled in, it's problematic because it can mean that you can have a faith at the end of the speak, speech that was all built on the wisdom of men. And I'm telling you this today because I'm going to try my absolute best to do 100% opposite. Because my concern is that I want what arises in here today to be a genuine faith. A genuine faith because we're at the end of the book of James. At the end of the book of James, I think there is presented in James 5, chapter verse 5, chapter 5, verses 13 to 20, a, a, a picture of a community that is praying kingdom prayers. And we're going to read the text in a little bit, but I think the community that's presented to us at the end of James is praying kingdom prayers in a way that actively is ushering the kingdom of God into the lives of the believers in that community. Um, and I, I can't do this with words. Just can't do it with words. There's no words, there's no amount of time. If you told me I could preach till Wednesday afternoon, I don't think I could do it then. So I want you to where you are, just ask the Lord, open my eyes. Present me a picture of something that is based on your wisdom, God. I'm not going to say I don't want you to hear my words, but I want you to perceive what God is presenting to you today. More than anything I say. Trying to create enough space for God to move and to speak and to breathe and to impart something to you. Because often, and Ben knows this, often at the end of sermons, people say, great preaching, great preaching, I appreciated it, well said. I don't care whether it's well said today. What I care is, is that at some point in the future, you remember 
that God imparted something to you that was meaningful. In my early days as a Christian, I used to sit in the front row in a church in London. I used to take notes the whole time. I wrote a lot of notes. And I remember when the first faith crisis hit me, I couldn't find my notes. Anyone had that experience? And what you, what you find that you want to be reaching out there for is the tangible thing that someone imparted to you that, 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 that was spirit to spirit, that was deep to deep, that wasn't intellectual. So you didn't even remember to take notes and you couldn't remember the, the, the number of points all beginning with the same word that tied it all together. But you knew that there was a substance of something that you received and it's still there because it's tangible and it matters in the middle of the trial that you're going through. And so as we come to our text this morning, turn in your Bibles, please, would you, with me to the book of James, and we're right at the end. If you need a Bible, raise your hand. Um, there are Bibles at the back. Um, you, you never have to even bring one. You don't even have to go to your phones. There are always enough Bibles at the back to pass one out. But our prayer is, God, our prayer, as we proceed into this text, is that you may cause to arise in us, in each of us, genuine faith. Faith to see the things of your kingdom. Faith to pray the things of your kingdom. Faith to usher the things of your kingdom to earth. That they might be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is our prayer on the left. On this side. In the middle. On that side. In the sound booth. And upstairs. And out in the back. Amen. James chapter 5 verses 13 to 20. And I want, as I'm reading this, for you to be thinking how much our community is or is not like this. There is not a problem ever presenting a picture of Scripture that doesn't look anything like us. That sometimes is a good space, because that's like holding up a mirror, and when the mirror's held up, we're like, God, we don't look a lot like that, but we want to look a lot like that, which might mean there's grace for God to cause us to look a little more like that. If anyone is among you, is anyone among you suffering, let him, what's the next word? If anyone is among you suffering, let him or her complain about it. Not pray. Be miserable and wallow. If anyone is suffering, pray. Let's stop there. If anyone is among you who is cheerful, let them sing psalms. Let them sing praises. I want you to realize that there's, there's a video that goes out of what happens here every Sunday, and the camera sometimes pans backwards, and it, it shows you all. And I'm not telling you that you've got to fake it for the camera, but I want you to go watch those videos sometimes and look at the backs of your own heads. Look what you're doing during worship, and look at the testimony that you're telling people who ain't here about how cheerful you are and how happy you are to be in the house of the Lord with your brothers and sisters. Because this says, if you're cheerful, sing psalms. So if I'm, if I, if I'm walking down the street and, and, and I see Dan and Dan is singing, I might say, Dan, why are you singing? And Dan will tell me I'm singing because I'm, I'm filled with the joy of the Lord. And so there's something about how we sing and how we shout and how we praise and how joy overflows that says something to someone else about how we're living and how God is impacting us. And so we shouldn't be dour and miserable. If anyone is cheerful, let him sing psalms. It gets a little bit more problematic for us. If anyone among you is sick, let him call for the elders of the church. How many of you know who the elders of the church are? How many of you have ever been sick and called for them? 
How many of you have done that in a church before this church? When you were sick, you called for the elders of the church. And what does it say? Let them pray over him or her, anointing them with oil in the name of the Lord. And what will happen? The prayer of faith will save the sick and the Lord will raise him up. If he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. I think in my recollection, I think I've done that once here. Um, maybe we should do it a whole lot more. Do you see how this is presenting to us a picture of a community of faith? A community of faith that is working, that is praying. If you're suffering, pray. If you're cheerful, sing. If you're sick, call for the elders of the church that they might come and anoint you with oil. And if that happens, then maybe the prayer of faith will save that sick person and the Lord will raise them up. But look at this. It goes further. If he's committed sins, he will be forgiven. So it seems as if there's also in that moment of that prayer a forgiveness of sins that can happen. But look at this in verse 16. Confess your trespasses to who? I didn't hear. <laughs> what does that mean? What it says. If you mess up, you'll tell someone. We don't have to go to the confessional booth that they've instituted in the Catholic Church, I think it is, and there's a priest the other side of a shutter and Forgive me, Father, I've sinned or whatever. I've never done it. I'm sorry if you're Catholic and I've messed it up, whatever it is. But it's telling us that there's something real about the connectivity of community, right? And so it's telling me that if I'm struggling with something and I've transgressed and I've sinned in some way, that there seems to be something substantive that happens when I don't wallow in it in myself or my own, but I go to a brother or sister and I say, hey, look, I messed up here. Will you pray for me? How many of you have done that? You see how this is a pre presentation of a community of faith. Pray for one another that you may be healed. Pray for one another that may you, you may be forgiven. This is all in there. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man, woman, avails much. And this is where it gets extra challenging. And this is my focus text for today. I'm going to read it, finish the passage, come back to it. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth produced its fruit. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his ways will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. You see, that's a community of work at work. Somebody goes off the rails, we don't let them go off the rails, we go find them, we bring them back. Someone is sick, we call for the elders of the church to come pray. You're sick yourself, you're suffering, you pray for yourself, you're happy, you, you testify, you give glory to God so other people can see what's going on. But the challenging passage for me is this thing about Elijah, because how many of you have ever prayed for it to rain when it hadn't rained and it actually rained? How many of you prayed for it to stop raining and it actually stopped raining? How do you feel about that? I make you feel that James is just messing with us. He's just put this in here to mess with us because he wants to present to us the kind of Christianity that is of, of extravagant, great, big, huge prayers that we will never be able to pray, so we're just going to feel small and insignificant and like James was just mocking us because he sees through history that there's this bunch of guys and ladies in Grace Marriott in 2023 who read that and think, I've never done that, and therefore I have to conclude theologically that God doesn't do that anymore, right? Because that's where we go. We, we, I, I love the song Waymaker, but you think of the theology of the song. 
What's Waymaker saying? Even though I see no answers to prayer, I guess you're doing something. You are here touching every heart. You're here touching every life. You're here changing every heart. Anybody's heart's been changed this morning yet? Anybody been healed while we've been sitting here? But we sing, you are here healing every heart. You are here touching every life. You're here changing every heart. And then we get up, and it doesn't happen, and we're fine with it. I don't think that's ordinary Christianity. Because the Bible speaks a lot about dumb idols, right? And I don't know whatever we could create that was a dumb idol. If it was a microphone stand, and we pray to the microphone stand, and we say, I need this, I want this, I want that, and the microphone stand is an answer, is that any better than we are as Christians? And you see, the issue that the world has with that is the world looks at us and the world thinks that you people say you know God and you pray prayers to God, but God doesn't answer your prayers. So is your God real or is he just another dumb idol? That should challenge us. It should concern us. There was a great evangelist, Charles Finney. How many of you have heard of Charles Finney? How many of you have read Charles Finney's autobiography? Go read it because there's a passage before he becomes a Christian where he's hanging around some guys in the Presbyterian church and he's not a Christian yet, and he's in a prayer meeting. And at some point in the prayer meeting, they say, Brother Finney, we've seen you here week after week after week. Would you like us to pray for you? And you know what he says? He says, no. He says, the fact that I need prayer is without doubt. You know what's coming next. But I've been hanging around you guys for weeks, for months. You pray for revival, there is no revival. You pray for breakthrough, there is no breakthrough. You pray for answered prayer, God doesn't answer your prayer. So why would you pray for me? And he sets himself on a life that is one that's all about what he calls prevailing prayer. Prayer that gets hold of God and brings the answers of God to a place where we don't have to sing songs that say that we don't see what's happening. We instead sing songs about what God's doing and what God has done and what God is going to do, because we're confident that God's going to do it. And you see, and James uses Elijah as the example, because Elijah's a bit out there. You think about the story of Elijah. Where does the story of Elijah begin? I think he just shows up on the scene in 1 Kings 17. Elijah the Tishbite, or whatever, whatever he's described at, he comes from a weird place. There's nothing about his lineage. We don't know where he came from, but he shows up on the scene in a time in, of history in Israel, when Israel's a mess. King Ahab is on the throne. King Ahab has married Jezebel. Jezebel has introduced the worship of Baal, or Baal, however you want to pronounce it. They've built altars to Baal, and God is obviously not happy about this. And so out of nowhere, God raises up Elijah. What's the first thing Elijah does is, he prays that it will not rain. Now, I want you to imagine praying the equivalent prayer today, right? Because if you're a farmer, you need rain. If God calls you to pray that it's not going to rain, is that prayer going to impact you? What is a prayer you could pray today that would be the equivalent of Elijah's prayer? Would you pray for recession? Would you pray that the job you know you want, but it's going to take you further from God, goes away? 
Would you pray, some, would you pray something so strong that it actually is going to impact you, so you're going to have to do what Elijah does is, which you're going to have to go and dwell by a brook and be fed by ravens. You see, because we want to pray kingdom prayers, but I wonder whether we're afraid to pray kingdom prayers because the things that God might be calling us to do, we ain't interested in praying. Because the second I pray that there's no rain, I'm causing myself to have an issue with finding water. Myself. And I need water to live. So why would I pray for there to be no rain? Because God wants me to pray for there to be no rain. When Elijah prays for there to be no rain, God calls him to go and dwell by a brook, and he dwells by the brook, and when he dwells, dwells by the brook, he's fed by birds that are unclean, because ravens, if you look at the history of Israel, are unclean birds. And so a bird's coming to him, and it's bringing to him something nasty in its mouth, and that's what you're going to eat. Why would you pray a prayer that takes you to that space? Why would you pray a prayer that then takes you to the house of the widow? When you get to the widow's house, which is where he goes to next, the widow has not enough food for herself. And so you show up at this woman's house and you're like, can you guys take me? And you're like, we ain't got enough in the cupboard. I'm like, God sent me. And you're like, get out, right? <laughs> no, we didn't. But the, what happens through me dwelling with you is that, is, that, is that great things happen, right? Sort of, right? Because, because, because the widow's food doesn't run out, but then her son dies. I don't feel like God's working, but God's given Elijah power to raise the son from the dead. But then God's going to bring Elijah into this confrontation with the prophets of Baal, and he's going to go on to the mountain, and he's going to cut the bull in half, and he's going to mock them, and he's going to say, you pray to a God who doesn't answer prayer. That shouldn't be us. And he waits, and he says, maybe your God's on the toilet, and God doesn't show up, and and then he douses the bulls with water to make sure that there's no mistake that a spark came from somewhere and set it to light. They say, no, you did this yourself, Elijah. I saw it. No, he has to wait from the far from heaven to come. And I don't know what that is. Maybe lightning strikes. Imagine that a big, huge bolt of lightning hits this thing, ignites it, blows up. And as a result of this, Elijah proves that day that the God who answers is the real God. It's not changed. A dumb idol or a God who answers prayer. And the rest of Elijah's life ends in the moment at which somehow the, 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 the opening between heaven and earth that he's created is so wide that a chariot comes through it and takes him to heaven. You know, in the book of Genesis, somewhere Jacob goes on a journey and he sees a ladder ascending from from earth to heaven, and what's going up and down on it? Angels are going up and down on it. And in the book of, uh, I think it's Matthew, wherever it is, that Jesus says to Nathaniel that you'll see angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Somehow it's telling us that there's this, this continuity between heaven and earth that we have to pay attention to. And I think prayer is all about that. Kingdom prayers are all about understanding what's going on in heaven, seeing it. Not being afraid to pray it. Wanting the thing that God wants. And bringing that thing to earth in a tangible, meaningful way. With a tenacity that means you don't let go of it until it happens. You think about this. Elijah has a nature like ours. He's not a superhero, has no cape. He doesn't have the skills of Iron Man to, or Batman, the, the non-real superheroes. Sorry, people. Um, 
who are just real clever humans. He has none of those things, and yet he's able to pray a prayer that means it doesn't rain because God showed him this. Jesus was exactly the same in John 5, chapter, John chapter 5, verses 19 to 20. Jesus says this. He says, most assuredly, I can say to you, the son can do nothing of himself but what he sees the father do. For whatever he does, the son also does in like manner. For the father loves the son and shows him all things that he does. A little while before that, Jesus in John 5, 17 says, the father's been working until now and I've been working. He's telling you back to that Waymaker song that I actually know what he's doing. I know what he's doing. It's not I don't know what he's doing. It's that I know exactly what he's doing. And he's showing me everything that he's doing. And he showed me in this time in Israel, Elijah, that I want it to not rain. And so you go pray that prayer, even though I know it's going to hurt you. Effective, fervent prayer of the righteous person gets hold of a whole lot. That's what that passage in James says. I think when we come to God, we should always expect answers. Even if the answer is no. Or the answer is maybe, or not yet. And if you think about it, there's a whole lot of those in Scripture. Hezekiah in 2 Kings 20, there's a passage at which the prophet shows up and tells Hezekiah that it's time for him to die. And before the prophet has finished leaving, Hezekiah's bowled to God and said, God, give me more time. And God replies and says, okay, 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 I'll give you 15 more years. And Isaiah, the prophet, turns back and says, oh, okay, hold on a sec. God says you have 15 more years. David desires to build a temple for God, and God says, affirm, no. But he got an answer. I want to build a temple for you because I have a fine house, and you deserve a fine house. And God says, no. And David's not vague about, oh, I don't know whether God wants me to build this or not. Maybe he does. Maybe he doesn't. I've prayed for, should I build a house for God? Should I build a house? What do you think? What do you think? What do you think? God said, no. Paul has a thorn in his flesh in 2 Corinthians 12, the scripture says. We don't know what that is. We don't know whether that was some weakness that he has, whether that was something physical, whether it was a susceptibility to something. History hides the nature of it from us. But he says he prays three times to God and God says, ain't taking it from you. Imagine having a, an ailment and you pray to God and God says, I'm not taking it from you. Live with it. But at least get yourself to a place where you get an answer. My hip hurts like heck. It started at this weird time um, We'd been in London for, uh, we'd meant to go for two weeks to renew a visa, and it turned into a six-week trip. Um, and um, somewhere in that process, in fact, I think it was literally as I landed back in America, I noticed that I was limping. Um, and, and it went away, and it came back, but it hurts a whole lot now. And, and, and I remember saying, God, what's that about? And I can think of Jacob and fighting with God and prevailing with God and all those sort of things. And we fought, and we got back, and it felt like wrestling with God. Um, and so if God says, that's it, put up with it, put up with it. But what's interesting is that um, 
Uh, you know, I still pray, God, heal me. <laughs> but I'd rather hear definitively what God has to say about it. Because if God says that in your weakness, my strength is made perfect, and this is to remind you about something that you can't really do anything in your own strength, and every time you limp, you're going to remember that, then I'll say, fine. But I don't yet have that answer, but I'm going to keep going until I have that answer. I took a trip to New York the other week. We were the only plane that didn't make it. <laughs> um, I had three really, really important meetings. Um, one was at three, one was about six, one was about eight. Our plane got in at 11 o'clock. We left Atlanta at one. Um, sorry, we left Atlanta at 11. We were due to land at one, and we encountered the storm. And then we circled in the storm because I was watching the monitor and I noticed the plane was doing this and then they told us what else we were doing. Then we landed in Virginia for 30 minutes, but the 30 minutes turned into an hour and a half and an hour and a half and then our pilots timed out and then it was 11 o'clock when we got in and all the meetings were canceled. And I said, God, what was that about? Was that because I wasn't meant to meet any of the people that I was meant to meet? And you know what God said? There are other conditions to answered prayer. One of them is in First um, Peter 3, and it says, Dwell with your wives with understanding, husbands, that your prayers may be heard. Anna and I had a little bit of a disagreement. We weren't necessarily speaking before I got on that plane. <laughs> and I felt God said it was nothing to do with anything. You're praying, pray, God, let this plane land, let this plane land, let the pilot show up. And he's like, seriously? Call your wife. I'm like, God, does everyone on the plane have to suffer because of me? <laughs> and so it's interesting because there are conditions to answer prayer, right? And that is one of them, husbands. First Peter 3, somewhere it says, dwell with your wives with understanding as the weaker vessel. Ladies, argue with God about that if you're stronger than your husbands. With understanding that your prayers may not be hindered. That's right, underline it. Don't pray prayers expecting the kingdom to come with earth, to earth if you're not getting on with your wife. What other conditions are there of prayer? There were some earlier in James. It says if you, you don't even ask, so you can't expect to get anything. Or you ask and you ask for the wrong motives, so you can't expect to get anything, right? In Hebrews, I think Hebrews 12, it says without holiness, no one will see God. So we're not going to live a holy life. Can't expect to see, don't expect to see the things of heaven. Jesus says, pray in the secret place that you might be rewarded openly. Maybe start praying less public prayers and more secret place prayers. Don't tell anybody what you're praying because then your transactions with God who says, if you pray in, this, pray in the secret place, then I will reward you openly. If you want to see more open prayer answers, pray more in secret. Jesus says this. Elsewhere, he says to his disciples who are trying to cast out a demon, this kind doesn't come out except with prayer and fasting. Sometimes you might have to fast as well. I love food. I really do. Fasting is hard. Because I think in fasting, there's a passage in, I think it's First John, that says, if anyone loves the world, the things of God are not in him. If the love of the world's in us, then somehow that's the antithesis of the thing of, the, of things of, the, of heaven. So I wonder why, well, that's God called fasting as one of the ways to show that we really want this. That I can give up my coffee or my cake or my beer or wine or food entirely. Because you know there's a passage in the book of Daniel when Daniel, 
many of you are familiar with the story where Daniel was trying to get some understanding and he doesn't let anything that tastes good come near his mouth for, for days. And, and eventually it says, um, is it Daniel chapter 10? Anybody? I wrote it down somewhere. It's probably in Daniel chapter 10. Um, after about th- three weeks of fasting, it seems as if the pre-incarnate Jesus shows up. And you know what he says to him? He says, I heard you on the first day. Isn't that amazing? I heard you on the first day. But I was resisted by the king of the prince, prince, uh, the king of the principality of Persia. I don't know what that means. Is that some angelic being? Whatever it is, he says he has to call for the archangel Michael to come and fight with him to get through. You're realizing you might see something spiritually, but getting it to earth might be hard. Fasting, holiness, right relationships with others, praying prayers that are going to actually hurt you if you pray them because you're more concerned about the kingdom than yourself. Do you find it easy to see the kingdom things when you pray? When you're praying, do you, do you talk too much? It's all this, God this, God that, God that, God that, God that, God on this, God this, God this, God that, I need this, 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 I want this, I want this, I want this, I want this, I need, I want, I want, I need, I want, I want, I need, I want, I want, I need, I want. And Jesus says, your Father knows what you need before you ask him. So when Jesus teaches his disciples to pray, how does he start? He says, the first thing we say is our Father, who is where? Heaven. So we're trying to see into heaven, right? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, where? Where I am, as it already is there. So he's telling us the whole thrust of prayer is about seeing the heavenlies. Seeing the heavenlies. So I imagine at some point that Elijah's in, in the land and he knows what's going with Ahab and he's praying and God shows him, I want it to stop raining. And he says, I'll pray, I'll pray that prayer. Will you be that person? Who in your space of prayer is listening more than you're talking and is seeing the thing of the kingdom of heaven and you're thinking, God, do you really want me to pray that? And your flesh begins to resist it because you think, I can't pray that. I need water. I don't want to go and dwell where those, I don't want to be fed by ravens by a river and all that and have this life of hardship that this prayer I'm about to pray is going to cause me. But I recognize that it's more important for your kingdom than it is for me, so I'm going to pray it anyway. Do you think we don't see the things of the kingdom of heaven well because we see and we've been trained to see so well otherwise? We've been trained to see bargains, We've been trained to spot the winning sports team so we can bet on it. We've been trained to read spreadsheets, engineering charts, law books, medical charts. We go to college for years to learn how to see those things better, to perceive them better. We become experts in it. Now, how many of us have been to school to learn to see the things of the kingdom of heaven? Anybody got a bachelor's in that? And I'm not talking about seminary. Because they don't train you that. They don't do, are they teaching you that there? Then you need to come and tell us how that works, right? <laughs> because I went to seminary and they were not teaching me how to see the things of the kingdom of heaven. But my law school taught me how to read law books and to articulate law and argue law. But I wonder whether it's not just that. 
I think there's also a thing called visual noise. Things just are in the way of us seeing. You ever been in a store where they weren't playing music? Ever been on an airplane before it takes off where they weren't playing music? Ever been in a moment where we're meant to try and hear God when someone doesn't play music? Or something? How many TV channels we got? How many streaming networks do we have? Who drives in their car and doesn't listen to an audiobook or all the news or music? Who just drives in silence? Anybody? A few of us. I don't do it enough. Who goes to the gym and doesn't stick headphones in? What do you do? Silence. I wonder if we found more space for silence. I wonder if we went home and looked at our houses and how they're set up to make noise and reoriented, reoriented our homes and reoriented our everything so that we could just hear more. Yeah. See, there's two parts of that. Recognizing that we've been trained to do some things well and to see well, but we haven't been trained too well to see the things of the kingdom of heaven. And we might have to get some of this visual noise out of the way first. But I think also this, I think also it's important to recognize that, 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 that seeing in kingdom terms might not be a nothing, everything. It might be progressive. What if it's progressive and I can train in it? So I might need to hang around people who see well and understand how they see, right? And how they hear and how they apprehend. But I wonder whether it's literally like this. If, if you could imagine when you were a baby and you didn't have understanding, what's the first thing you see? Probably your mother's face. Do you know that's your mother? It's just a blur. How clear is that sight? Maybe there's a sense of a, a bond that you feel, but you don't necessarily know that's a, your mother, and you certainly can't say, Mum, yet. But I wonder when someone puts something in front of you. You ever see babies doing this sometimes, and they like to sometimes grab fingers and just hold on to it? I don't think the baby knows that that's someone's finger that it's holding on to. And I wonder whether seeing spiritually is exactly like that. You start somewhere. You pray and say, God, I recognize that I don't see well. I'd like to see better. Let me start. Let me just start. And the first thing you might see might be a blur. And you don't know what it is. But then you go with it, and then the blur becomes a little bit clearer. And then you have a sense of, I think this is what God's saying. And you might be wrong, but even if you're wrong, just like the baby, you get up and you start again. You don't, if, you, if your prophetic insight is wrong the first time, don't quit trying to be a prophet. The Bible says don't quench prophecy. It says test all things. So that means there should be an abundance of prophecy, so much that we've got to, we've got to have like the prophecy testing weeks, right? Where there's, there's this 400 words came from that side of the congregation and 800 from there, and you guys were quiet that week, and these guys upstairs had a lot, right? Sorry. And, and, but, but, the, but there's this big line of things, and we've got to work our way through. We've got to test it. We've got to weigh it. We've got to say, which, what of this is of God? And if this is of God, let us walk after this, but at least let's have the abundance of it. And so be vulnerable, be willing to be like the little kid who's going who's gonna, to gonna try something. I remember my, a pastor in London used to say to me, and, and Ben, we, you say the same thing as well, is the whole sense that, that if you're praying for someone and you, and you know that you need an answer from God, ask him, and then go with what you get, right? 
And that might be a word of wisdom or knowledge or insight or healing or something that's going to be a difference maker. But it's a tangible answer in that moment that helps the person. So recognize that we've been hyper-trained to see a particular way. Recognize that there is visual noise. Recognize that seeing in a spiritual sense might be a pathway to maturity, that we've got to walk like babies with the blur and then being able to apprehend what it is and grab that finger and then knowing that the finger is called a finger and knowing what the finger is for. Right, knowing that that finger isn't my finger, I've got my own fingers, and so on and so forth. See, it's a, a progression. And here's two other things that I think help me understand why I don't think we see well. Um, the first one is I think we don't talk about the things we do see. Uh, we're pretty big here on the concept of life signs, a verifiable narrative, so you can prove it, of overcoming the world, right? that we made some kind of contribution to. I challenged the prayer team with us the whole time. You pray for someone, I want to hear how that prayer was answered. And every so often someone comes back and says, life sign, life sign, life sign, life sign, life sign. I prayed for someone who was looking for a job and they, guess what? Got a job, right? Hallelujah. We don't have testimony time when someone stands here and says, let me tell you what the Lord did in my life last week. Let me tell you what the Lord did in my life last week. I think that's back to that passage in James. When you're cheerful, sing songs. When you've got answers from God, tell someone. Because then you might suddenly find that God is working and God is speaking in our midst a whole lot, right? But here's the other thing I think is problematic, and it's always been a problem for me. Samuel and Eli. God speaks to Samuel at the beginning of the book of Samuel. What's the first thing Samuel does when God speaks to him? He gets up and he runs to Eli. Why does he do that? He ain't used to hearing from God. <laughs> the only way he can hear from God is through the specialist. Right? So God speaks to him again. Samuel, Samuel. Samuel runs to Eli. Eli says, I didn't call you. Then Eli perceives, I think it says the second time, that God is speaking to him directly. So he says, next time God calls you, don't run to me. Hear that. Don't run to the specialist because there is no specialist in church. We're all just people with different roles. Different roles, different functions, teachers, prophets, evangelists. Pastors, shepherds, different gift mixes. Everyone's different, but everyone is before God a priest and a king. Every one of us can or should hear from God. That's the challenge I want to put back on you, is that there shouldn't be specialist prayers in this place. When the emergency hits, we all know who we call first and the people we try and get on a prayer chain. But why is that not you? Why should that be someone else? Because imagine if your neighbor knew that you were a person that could get hold of God in the middle of the night, because they know in that house lives a person of God, and I got a need. And I know that that person knows how to get hold of God, and so when I got a need, I'm going next door, even if they've been godless and hating you and didn't give your lawnmower back or whatever, whatever's gone on, right? They know where to come when the time comes. And I think this passage is challenging us all to be like that. Yeah? 
the effective, it works. It's not just brick wall, brick wall, brick wall, brick wall. Um, I need a volunteer, Cole. Turn around. Is this what your prayer life is? Can I have something? Can I have something? Cole, I want this. Cole, I want this. Um, I really, really, really need it. I really, really need it. I really, really need it. Will you give me this? I need a job. I need a house. I need healing. I need a house, car, healing. I need a job. I need success in my business. I need this, that, the other, right? So what your prayer life feels like? Cole, answer me. Say something. See? Prayer. Shouldn't prayer be just like that? It's the turning of God around, if God's back's to you in a sense, right? Is it any different? How many of us are content, though, with this? Morning, Cole. Um, yeah, I ain't doing well. Uh, I need this, I need that, I need that, I need that, I need this, I need that, 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 I need that. Oh, got to go to work. <laughs> Thanks, Carl. Appreciate it. Round of applause for Carl. Yeah. Don't let our prayer lives be like that, please. The effective, I get an answer. I demand an answer. I don't let go of God until I get an answer, even if it throws my hip out. Right? You're going to get hold of God because you're going to start by seeing the thing that God wants more than you want it. Agreeing with that, aligning with that, working out what it is and beginning to pray it and in the growth towards maturity, getting better and better and better and better at it. And so, um, any questions about any of that? legitimately, anything that, because the Lord may have said something to you that makes more sense for someone than something I've said. Okay. Here's, here's what I want us to do today. I, I don't want this to be intellectual. Um, which is why I've been deliberately moving all over the place a little bit. Um, I want us to pray kingdom prayers today. And so I don't know where you find yourself, whether you want to have a prayer, prayer, prayer that says, God, I, I, I recognize that my prayer life is like talking to Cole's back. <laughs> and I do not find that acceptable anymore. You might pray a prayer that says, God, I want to be the person that the people in my street come to in their emergency. You might say, I want to be the person in this congregation that people come to when there is an emergency. You want to pray, God, I want to be the person that sees the emergency before it happens and calls on God to avert it. Hasn't that happened in Scripture? I want to be the person that prays the prayer of healing for the sick. I want to be the person that restores the one that's off the rails 
Are you recognizing that that's a call for us to be a community of faith, of prayer, who are connected one to another? Because my life will not work if you aren't praying for me. Factually. Your life won't work if someone's not praying for you. And I'm not just talking about regular prayers. I'm talking about prayers where you're like, God, what is the will of God for this person? How can I pray that? With power and not letting go. And if you don't get an answer, you don't just content yourself with nothing. You're like, God, what did I do wrong? What did I do wrong? You might say you need holiness without, you won't see me without holiness. He might call you to change some aspect of your life. He might say, go reconcile yourself to your wife. He might say, he might, he might say, he might say stop talking about yourself so much. He might say, do it more in the secret place. He might say, be patient. My answer's coming. He might say, you need to fast. But can we be that to one another? I need you to be that for me. And I know you need everyone else to be that for you. That's why we're here, right? We didn't just come because we wanted to sing songs. Uh, we came because we have faith that somehow in this moment, in this place, it can change 100% from whatever it was before we showed up to something radically different. Yes? And so if it's okay with you, here's, here's all I'd like to do to close. I'd like us to go to communion um, together. Um, can you... Uh, Hold on to it so we can take it all together, if, if you would, please. So just go collect communion from there and there. And then after that, um, I'm going to give the benediction early. So I'm going to dismiss us and pray that we can now go do this thing that we've been thinking and talking about. Then I'm, we're going to open this space up. And you can do anything you like there. You can leave, um, or you can come and kneel or sit or in groups with people around you, begin to pray the things that you think God wants you to pray that is as best as you can discern it with the sight that you have, a kingdom prayer. And that might be something that they say, will you pray this for me? But you might be with them and you might have a sense of, I think the Lord's telling me to pray this for you. And how long will we stay? It's up to you. Um... There's, there's no sense of this has to finish in five minutes, 10 minutes, 20 minutes, or whatever it is. I just want us to open the space here to pray kingdom prayers. And so may we go, please, to the communion stations on the left and on the right and bring your communion back with, with you to your seats, please, that we might take it all together.